Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. Sometimes it's just me, and other weeks I'm in conversation with another rabbi or a Jewish thought leader. Ready to start a new book? This week we begin the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. And the first parsha in Shemot is also Shemot. Now, Shemot means names because it begins with the names of the children of Israel, the sons of Israel who came down to Egypt at the end of the last book. But it quickly moves away from them and that generation to a new generation of Israelites 400 years later who are slaves. So as we open the book of Exodus, we're going to meet the main character, the main figure of the Exodus, and that, of course, is Moses. Today, I'm going to talk about Moses with a friend and colleague of mine, Rabbi Elise Glickman. She's the rabbi of the Danforth Jewish Circle right here in Toronto, and we're going to talk about Moses as a reluctant leader. Now, as always, we'll spend about the first 10-12 minutes talking about the Torah portion. After that, we take a short break and continue with an interview about all things Jewish. In this case, we'll talk about congregational life and about Jewish education, about embodied practice, and the way that Judaism borrows and shares with other cultures. So please stick around for a really interesting conversation. Rabbi Elise Glickman, welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Thanks. Lovely to be here. Lovely to be with you. First of all, how's the weather down there in Midtown Toronto? <laughs> um, no snow on the ground, a little bit chilly out, and happy to be inside where it's warm and cozy. That's good. I'm much further north than you. Here in the northern suburbs, we also don't have any snow, although there were some, there, although there were some flurries this morning when I was out with the dog. Um, so you are currently serving as rabbi at the Danforth Jewish Circle, which is a wonderful congregation in downtown Toronto. We'll get to talk about that later. I know you're also a doctoral student, and I want to ask you some questions about that later as well. But for now, if it's okay with you, let's uh, talk Parsha. Perfect. I look forward to it. Let's dive in. Let's. So we're reading from Shmot. We are starting a new book this week. And in this Parsha in this book and in these opening chapters, we meet Moses. In chapter two, we'll see Moses's birth and origin story, how he develops into a leader. Um, interestingly enough, the result of a great number actually of strong women who make Moses what he is. And maybe that's a conversation we can have the next time. Because I know that what you wanted to talk about and what's really interesting when it comes to Moses is what happens at the burning bush? When God comes and speaks to Moses, God calls him for this very important task of setting the Israelites free, leading the Israelites from slavery into freedom. And Moses's response, in fact, over and over again, is something like, I'm not so sure I'm the right guy. You know, he says, who am I that you should send me? And then Moses says, who are you? And then Moses says, you know, I'm not much of a public speaker. And then ultimately he's fine. He says, okay, fine. I guess I'll go, but you need to appoint me a helper. So Moses is so reluctant to take on this leadership position. And I wonder what do you think's going on here? Why does Moses behave this way? Yeah, it's really interesting. So he's this 
shepherd just doing his own thing and he marries and he has a life and he has this, as you say, this burning bush, awesome experience. And it's, as you say, no fewer than five times that he actually counters back to God with the no, but, uh, no, but I am not a good public speaker. No, but are you sure I'm the right person? No, but what are the Israelites going to say? I'm a virtual stranger to them when I show up to them and say like, hey, I'm your new leader and I'm going to be delivering you to freedom. And I'm really interested in the repetition of that. I think that's a, an interesting narrative and narrative tool in the text. But I'm interested in Moses. We know he becomes really our greatest biblical leader, but he seems to have such a hesitation to step into that leadership role. And it makes me think of this archetype of character that we might call the reluctant leader. Hmm. This is a person whose greatness might be thrust upon them from without, from another person, or in this sense, from God, God's self. And the person saying, I don't, I don't know if I can do it, slash, I don't want to do it. And are you sure I'm the right person looking over his shoulder saying, maybe you want my brother, in fact. You know, we can look back and say, wow, look at this origin story of this leader who maybe didn't even want the job in the first place. You know, it's interesting. Moses has a comfortable life for himself. He's married. He's got a child. He's living out in Midian. You know, taking on this leadership role in many ways is giving up that life that he's built for himself. It is it is a meaningful life. He's going to take on this grand, important task. But it means choosing a different kind of life than maybe the one that he would have had. I wonder if that's part of his reluctance in taking this on. And then the other thought I had is there's a there's a passage much further in the Torah when um, Miriam and Aaron are gossiping about Moses, where it says that Moses is exceedingly humble. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at this passage, I always wonder, is he humble? Is he afraid? Does he just not want to take it on? Does he feel insecure? What do you th- what do you think it is that's causing this reluctance that we, that we see in him? So I think that Moses as a person and as a character at this point in chapter two, three, four of Exodus, I don't think he has a sense of his self. I think his ego development is still in process. Hmm. And I'm drawn to the teachings of Musar to explore this. So Musar is this idea. Uh, for all of our listeners out there, of um, that there are character traits that each of us has called midot, and we each explore them, and we have our own spiritual curriculum, and we have the right measure, like a recipe almost, of how much of each midah, how much of each of these character traits serves us best to be the best, most authentic selves that we're meant to be. Right. And the word midah actually means measure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. So the rabbis teach us that the very first midah that we're to cultivate, hone, explore in our in our bodies and in our minds and in our souls is humility. Hmm. Anava in Hebrew. And you would think, one might think that anava, humility, is all about making ourselves small. Almost like the Moses story saying, 
oh God, who am I? I'm not the right person. I have a potential speech impediment and challenges. Maybe ask somebody else, maybe ask my brother. But the teaching of the rabbis says that anava, again, it's about finding along a spectrum of the recipe that each of us needs to have, is finding the right middle ground, to quote a little bit of Rambam, Maimonides here, of the right path. And so having no confidence, hubris, meaning going the opposite way, being so humble, may not serve us at all because we may not take up what they say is enough space in the world. And of course, on the other end, if you're so haughty and you have no humility or not enough in your own spiritual sense of self, then you are, you're just going to steamroll everybody and you'll just be this overpowering figure and you might people might feel intimidated by you. So when I think about Moses here at the beginning of his story, he's just dipping his toe into what it means to become this potential leader. And if we could kind of musar him, <laughs> um, armchair analysis, it seems to me that there's work yet to be done, right? He is leaning towards the left end, right? The, the end of humility that is like, woe is me, I'm not enough, et cetera, et cetera. And he really needs to step into the leadership position and know that that's too much humility. God has actually handpicked him for greatness. It is destined in him. And so when you ask the question before about like, what, what might he be feeling? He had this, this life. He grew up in the palace. He chooses a different life as a shepherd. There was more greatness that was meant for him. And mm. that's the journey that he's about to be on. It does seem to me that he actually vacillates on that spectrum that you're describing. And, and the spectrum you're describing comes from Maimonides, who says essentially that with all of these character traits, we need to be somewhere toward the middle. Not too angry, but not no anger at all, because then there's no fire in you. Not You can't be too stingy, but if you give away everything, then you'll have nothing left. And so the same with this humility. And I think we do watch Moses go back and forth on that spectrum where he begins his life saying, I don't think I can do this job. I'm not the right guy for the job. I'm not a public speaker. Later on in the story, we will see Moses actually at the other end of the spectrum where he's trying to do everything to the point where his father-in-law has to sit him down and say, Moses, you need some help. You need to delegate. You can't be the only leader here. And the same thing with him as a public speaker, where Moses will begin his life saying, I don't want to talk. And then he'll end his life actually talking for an entire book. And so maybe the message is that that you need to find this middle place, that Moses needs to learn that he can be a leader. But then he also later in life needs to learn that he needs to share leadership and that he needs to find ways to empower others at the same time. That is brilliant, Micah. I really love that long look at the entire story of Moses. Um, if we want to take a look outside of Torah, to a Jewish author, Marianne Williamson. She, she's very well known for this, this piece of writing called Our Greatest Fear. And I feel like she's channeling this conversation of Anava humility and also the entire Moses story. Our deepest fear is that we are, is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. 
We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, handsome, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. And that's Hmm. just a little piece of that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's gorgeous. And it reminds me of the um, the Hasidic story or the Hasidic teaching that we're all supposed to have a piece of paper in each pocket, one of which says, I am nothing but dust and ashes. And the other of which says the whole world was made only for me. Because I think we go through life often feeling that sense of, of insecurity. Who am I to be here to do this, to be listened to, to teach others. And then other times we do feel that grandiosity, right? That that I I know things that you don't know. You need to listen to me. And so finding that middle ground really is, I think, the key in many ways to being a a leader and maybe to building relationships in general. I, I love that teaching. It's really, really well known and really famous. And I think that is a great way to exemplify with true pieces of paper in our pocket or metaphorically remembering them, this concept of anava, of humility. And if we could overlay one Torah teaching over this entire thing, it's that if we remember, and I know you and I as rabbis uh, and as Jews, we, we believe this, we teach it, that we are all created in the divine image. There is that spark inside each of us, right? And Musar is asking us to to learn what that spark is, to cultivate, not to run away from our greatness and whatever that is. But of course, to temper that with the right tablespoon, the right cup of humility. And that is really intense work. You know, in a previous conversation, you and I have talked about whether as we age, we can grow and change. Mm -hmm. And this is teaching us that the learning and the changing and the growing and the neuroplasticity is is uh is never the door is never closed to us yeah and that maybe what it means to be created in god's image is to always be able to learn more to reinvent yourself to try new things learn new things take on new new tasks and moses is a great example of that he might have thought as we said before he might have thought he had his life all figured out i'm married i've got a kid i've got my flocks i've got my house in the suburbs i'm all set (laughs) But here he is in middle age, I assume, ready or or not ready, but needing to take on this task, right? And I think there are tasks that come to us throughout our lives that say, I need you to take me on. And this is a moment in which you as a leader can really shine. So maybe that's what Moses is experiencing here is that there is a moment where he is needed, where the world needs him, where others need him, and where he has to actually put aside his insecurity and his humility and find his place in the world and take his place as a leader in the world. That's beautiful. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to take a short <laughs> break. And when we come back after the break, we'll continue this conversation with Rabbi Elise Glickman. While we're taking this break, let me take this opportunity to thank our two newest supporters of 7-Minute Torah. One is Diana Fisher of Los Angeles, California. Diana is also part of the new La Soak weekly Torah study group, and I've really enjoyed getting to know her and studying with that group. Thank you, Diana. We have another anonymous 
supporter also from California, California representing this week. Thank you to both of them and to all of those who give a small amount each week to help support the production of this podcast. And while I've got you, let me also remind you that next Wednesday, January 18th in the evening, I am starting a four-week Zoom series on radical Jewish views of God. So we'll be looking at the writings and the thinking of some Jewish thinkers that have had more controversial things to say about God. People like Maimonides and Spinoza, some Jewish feminist thinking, thinking about whether God is a being or a process or an idea. And we'll get up close and personal with some of the writings of these great thinkers. And if you'd like to sign up for that class, you can go to laasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org. And right on the front page, you'll see the link for the class called Beyond the Old Man in the Sky. So I'm looking forward to seeing some of you there. And now let's continue with our conversation with Rabbi Elise Glickman. We're back. Uh, so first of all, Rabbi Glickman, or Elise, thank you for that conversation. I feel like I learned something new from every person I interviewed. That's why I have these conversations, because I just want to learn from other people who know lots of Torah. Um, so let me ask you about your rabbinic life. You are currently the congregational rabbi of the Danforth Jewish Circle, which is a lovely congregation, as I mentioned earlier, in downtown Toronto on the Danforth. Um, and you've been there only a few months, right? Will you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing there? Yeah, I just started in October. So it's just, a, it's been, I guess, three months. What a lovely community. It is uh, an unaffiliated, progressive, highly inclusive in principle and in action congregation. Um and inclusive in, in so many ways, inclusive in interfaith, intercultural, inclusive LGBTQ+, but it also literally lives in a building that for many, many years was a united church, and we rented space. And then a few years ago, another church community, uh, Universalist Unitarian, came in. And then a few years ago, all three of those faith communities, the two churches and our synagogue, became the Danforth multi-faith commons. So we are literally taking up space together and we share the space beautifully because, well, we need it on Shabbat. They don't. Uh, they might use it on a Sunday morning. And so we use the space on a Sunday evening. And so that works out quite nicely. And then it lends itself to collaboration and conversation about small and big issues. You know, it could be a book club that we're partnering on, but it could also be uh, a larger conversation about a current events issue in the city or nationally. That's really interesting. So do you, as clergy and members of these congregations, do you then partner for programming where you'll come together in your shared space to talk about an issue or to talk about religious life together? Well, COVID has put a bit of a, a pin in that. I think that, again, this, this was a pretty recent commons that has been created. I think that is the goal. And certainly my predecessor was doing some of that work. Um, just at the end of this month, I'll be the guest speaker at one of the church services. Hmm. Um, so that's the kind of collaboration that I'm stepping into. Uh, but as on the congregate level, yes, there, there's, there's definitely, there's more opportunity and there is stuff going on. And I'll also say that I'm 
fascinated by that, but also even more broadly, Danforth's Jewish Circle is part of um, another multi-faith experience that's encompassing all of East York, which is sort of the east east end of Toronto. So it's not only this multi-faith commons, three three places, but larger. There's a mosque. Um, there's a Muslim community that's uh, part of it and a few more Christian communities. So it's really, really, really interesting. Now that's the broader pieces. Now internally, um, what a great community. It's got a, an incredibly robust social justice committee that takes on um, issues that are broad and deep and has a really large membership. Um, and it's got a lovely chesed committee, a caring committee that is a just a truly well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. There's an issue with someone in hospital or someone's uh, passing on, or there's a, some other uh, grief or strife in an individual or family, and we know what to do. There are cards that are sent out. We know how to reach out. And so people have really taken the mantle of chesed, of caring for one another quite seriously. That's nice and um, and really important in a in a in Jewish community. I know that your congregation also has been really creative around issues of interfaith inclusion, in- inclusion of interfaith families and non-Jews who are part of the congregation. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your congregation's unique approach, or I think it's a unique approach to those <laughs> questions? It is a unique approach, something I was very drawn to in this congregation. You're absolutely right. It is known around the city and beyond for being radically inclusive, so much so that every part of of our tefillah, of our services, every part of ritual life is open to everyone and anyone. If someone wants to read Torah, engage in hagba, lifting of Torah, have an aliyah to Torah, lead any part of a service, there is a ritual leadership program that my predecessor and, and now I will be leading. And so there is a prerequisite to it, but the doors are open to everyone, Jewish and non-Jewish. People have come home to Judaism as adults. People were born Jewish, not Jewish at all, Jewish adjacent. Every single person can participate in Jewish life. And that is one of the most unique aspects of the Danforth Jewish Circle. Mm-hmm. And there is a there's a commitment, right? You have to take this class, whether you're born Jewish or not, whether you've converted or not, you want to lift Torah, you want to be called to an aliyah, there's this learning process of sort of opting in committing if i understand correctly because i've talked with your predecessor about it before of opting in committing in order to be able to participate so to a certain extent it moves jewish participation from a question of status are you in or out are you born in or out have you converted properly or not to a question of engagement or opting in that you know jewish life now becomes about those who seriously choose to engage in these in these meaningful rituals or not absolutely and what i what it does is it says to the folks who were born and raised jewish there's learning to do there's there's an opting in on your part too it isn't just oh you you must know this or you should know this right so everyone is learning and the course is fascinating it's a little bit it's a mix of background and sort of the theological underpinnings of different ritual leadership opportunities, but then also the tachlis, like how do you actually do it? What, you know, 
what's the, I don't know, the best way to bend your knees to lift the Torah, you know, that like that kind of choreography. Um, and then, you know, if it's an Aliyah to Torah, we're, we're practicing the singing or the reading of the blessing itself. Yeah, it's a very interesting model to me to think about how inclusiveness means actually giving tools, no matter who you are, whether you're Jewish or not, it means giving tools to people to be able to participate. And that I think that actually probably does help people to move closer to full participation and to being able to engage with Judaism in meaningful ways. Yeah. And, you know, for years I uh, worked and lived in New York. I know you're originally American. So we've talked a little bit about that over the years. And there's something really special I noticed in the U.S. about the what we might call the Jewish adjacent partner, parent, spouse. And to, to lesser extent or not lesser extent, depending on the congregation here in Toronto, we also see that. And the Danforth Jewish Circle has many, many families and couples. And so it's taking that to the next step. It's not saying that's so great. You're committed to having a Jewish home, raising your Jewish child, bringing them to religious school, being a supportive partner, but you're also on a Jewish journey. And as you say, some Jewish journeys culminate in ultimately coming home to Judaism and becoming a Jew by choice. And some don't. And we have this beautiful model in Torah that I like to lean on. We have the Ger Toshav. These are the folks who live with us and among us and journey with us. And that's how I think about the this radical inclusivity that we're doing at DJC. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, speaking of learning, of Jewish learning and education, I know that you are involved in a doctoral program right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing there? Oh my gosh, delighted to. So I, I am currently a second year doctoral student at the Davidson School at the Jewish Theological Seminary, JTS. So it's an executive program for senior Jewish educators who have been doing this forever. Um, and so we live all over the world and we can live all over the world. So it's mostly asynchronous. And we ultimately, God willing, will end up with an EDD, a doctorate in Jewish education. And it's an EDD rather than a PhD because it is a practitioner based. Hmm. Um, it's theolo- the- theoretical at first, but it really jumps off the page. And we are being trained as researchers, as scientists to be out in the field to ultimately research educational settings and whatever we're interested in studying. And then ultimately writing a dissertation and seeing what comes of that. And what are you studying? So the coursework is prescribed. Everyone takes the same work. Uh, Everyone takes the same courses. Um, A little bit of how to become a researcher. um, And then also social emotional learning and Jewish visioning. And it's all absolutely beautiful. I'll say um, for those who are listening, who, um, who know a little bit about like sort of seminariness uh, affiliations, Mike, both Mike and I uh, are products of the reform movement. And so I um, did my first master's degree in Hebrew literature and then ordination from Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, which is the reform seminary. And then I also went back a few years ago and got my master's in Jewish education there. And so now I've moved to a different seminary and a different graduate school. And it has been absolutely brilliant 
meeting new professors, new rabbis, just a whole other and extended family that I've entered into. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing to think about how you can broaden your own Jewish world, just like Moses, <laughs> right? At this stage of life where we're, we're always learning new things. Um, this may or may not be relevant, but it's on my mind anyway. I've been reading a, a biography of Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the great teachers of 20th century Judaism, who um, was um, truly plucked from the jaws of Nazi Germany three months before the war started and, and landed in Cincinnati at Hebrew Union College, which is both of our alma mater. Are you a Cincinnati grad also, or are you a New York grad? I'm New York. All right. I'm Cincinnati, <laughs> but at any rate, we were both ordained from Hebrew Union College. But after five years at HUC, Heschel found his way to the Jewish Theological Seminary and spent the rest of his career there. And that was for him much more of a... Um, of a Jewish home. It was more traditional. It, it, I think it was closer to his theology. It's interesting how the movements are so different in terms of their approach to Judaism, but at the same time, so much the same and so much part of a larger Jewish community. Are you finding at JTS that, um, and I know you're not there full time, you're not in classes in, in person with people, but are you finding that you do feel part of a larger Jewish community, even though you come from potentially different movements and different Jewish backgrounds? Yeah, it's really interesting because it's mostly asynchronous. And when it's not asynchronous, it's over Zoom synchronously. So I haven't even been to the campus. I've been to the campus before, but not in this iteration as a graduate student. So I, I would say I'm, I'm not feeling part of the, the larger JTS system. And maybe by extension, I'm not feeling, uh, you know, warmly welcomed into the conservative movement. But that's not the point of this program. You know, as I said, it is for anyone and everyone. You know, HUC, our alma mater, does not have an executive ed D program. Mm -hmm. So even if I wanted to, it wouldn't be available to me. So it is really, you know, post-denominational in a sense, uh, this doctorate program, because it's reaching across aisles, so to speak. And Really, anyone can come from the, within the, the Jewish educational world. So from that perspective, it feels very warm and welcoming because anyone and everyone is welcome. And uh, it's just been such, I mean, the work is hard and I can't even express how, um, how time consuming it is, but it's, it's beautiful. My, my, I feel the synapses create, you know, firing and being created as I, do these readings and and do the, the academic work. It's really amazing. And I'm learning so much. Are you um, willing to tell us what your dissertation might be about? Yes. Okay. So I, uh, I hesitate to share it only because it might change uh, for those of you who have ever done this work, you know, the research might change, but here's where I am right now in second year. I'm, I'm really interested in exploring what it is in the Jewish world in our Jewish spheres that are embodied practices, that are spiritual practices, and that are meditative practices, and how we do or do not, so if we, how we borrow and take inspiration from without Judaism, whether it's another faith community, another culture, another way of being. And I was drawn to it originally 
um, from my work as a yoga practitioner. I became a yoga teacher a number of years ago. And so it's a deeply personal effort for me. I am myself constantly asking as a yoga teacher, as a yoga practitioner, and as a Jew and as a rabbi, where is the marriage? Where is the sort of Venn diagram in all of these endeavors and with all of these pieces? I am petrified that I and the Jewish community are culturally appropriating, whether it's yoga or meditative or spiritual practices. Are we appropriating? Is it cultural appreciation? And then somebody pointed out to me and reminded me, of course, as Jews, we have lived all over the world for millennia and have been guests, friendly or otherwise, in other people's countries and homes. And we have borrowed dress and um, music and speech patterns and food and cuisine. And all of that has been because we have become part of other places, other cultures, other peoples. And so I think this is an extension of that conversation, at least for me, is when it comes to these meditative and embodied practices, is it just more of that? Are we borrowing in the, with the best intentions? Um, and, and now to take it even broader, do we, in fact, have to look without our own tradition? Hmm for this kind of inspiration, because our Jewish tradition is thousands of years old. And to go back to Musar, which we talked about a few minutes ago, when we were talking about the Torah portion, we have our own curriculum, we have our own writings on spirituality, on moving our bodies, and on um, on that mind body connection. So that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in exploring. It's very interesting. It, this raises up so many things for me. I could talk to you about that for the next <laughs> hour. Um, so when you talk about embodied practices, I mean, I think about movement in prayer, right? The standing, sitting, bowing, shuckling, kind of the yeah. ways that we move. What other embodied practices are in Judaism that you're thinking about? So that's part of the problem is that we used to have a more physical sense of moving our bodies, particularly when it came to prayer and this idea of sort of shuckling as we're studying a page of Talmud, one could say. And we became, I'm making broad strokes here, <laughs> we've become so cerebral. And that really became for many, many people in, in the Jewish community, the way to, to access study, text, and prayer. So I would like to believe that somewhere along the way, we moved our bodies to express the words of the prayer. Like, for example, when we wake up in the morning, we have Birkot HaShachar, these blessings of the morning, which were then eventually moved into the Sidur itself and canonized so that we do it all together when we gather to pray. Mm -hmm. And these are, these are blessings that acknowledge that our eyes open in the morning, that our feet plant on the ground, that we can stand up. That, and then there's another one that's, you know, that we can go to the washroom and everything works and all the pipes work as we should. And that I can stretch our arms and those types of things. To me, that seems like they might have been more physical practices once upon a time. They're built into the words of the practice themselves, right? Blessed are you, eternal one who opens my eyes. Blessed are you <laughs> who makes my steps from it. Sounds like a blessing over getting up 
and stretching and opening your eyes and walking away from your bed, right? So yeah, I can see what you're saying. Those are deeply embodied. Those are physical things that we do. But now it's become mostly something we do in the sanctuary together, right? Right. We actually just say the thing that you just said. We say the different blessings, but we're not moving our bodies to physically represent the thing that we're saying. I'm thinking also of lighting the Shabbat candles. You know, we have this tradition, we light them and then we take our arms and we three times and, you know, for some, for some communities, we physically bring in the lights Mm -hmm. or Havdalah as we conclude Shabbat on that final, the third blessing, when we are acknowledging the candle some of us lift our hand up and we see the shadows. So there is that we do have these hints of using our bodies as tools to embody the words that we're saying. So I'm curious to know what that history is. Did we lose it along the way? And then, as I said before, what we borrow um, and what we are inspired by from without the Jewish community and how we are bringing it into our own practices today. Yeah, it's interesting to think about what it means to borrow practices and rituals, because of course we could look over Judaism and point to all the things that have been borrowed from somewhere at some point down to what we call the Jewish calendar, which was (laughs) a Babylonian calendar or the practices of Hanukkah, which are so clearly related to pre-Jewish light, you know, winter time, lighting up the world practices. Purim is related to Persian holidays. There's so much in Judaism that is related that you have to wonder really whether there's anything that's purely Jewish or has Judaism always been this process of living in communication and in in contact with the outside with the outside world and as and at the same time sharing our ideas with them right it gives you this sense that people human beings have actually mostly lived alongside one another which means that we would expect Judaism to be learning from the people that we're living alongside today as well but then as you point out it gets to the point where you have to ask are we appropriating other people's ideas rather than turning inward and asking what has our tradition had to say about these questions that we're asking? These are all amazing questions, Micah. And I want to pick up on one of them that you just said is, can we assume that other cultures, other communities are likewise borrowing from the Jewish community? And I, I'm having a visceral bristle against that because we can look to, sometimes we see in the news and on social media we see people taking on Kabbalah as the, sort of the best worst example. Um, you know, non non wholly non Jewish communities or individuals being inspired by the teachings of that, which are unbelievable. We are so rich in that teaching. Um, and then, you know, so do we look at that and say, please go enjoy? It is our gift to humanity. Or do we say? Ooh, like that's very Jewish and I'm uncomfortable with you using that. So I think it really is a two-way conversation. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to learn things from other cultures without appropriating them per se? Because there's a great deal to be learned from yoga, from Buddhist traditions, from indigenous traditions. There's a lot to be learned there. Um, but that's different from appropriating somebody else's tradition and 
making it your own or appropriating it without thoughtfully understanding where it comes from. It makes me think of this term, which is so beautiful and so important that has really been picked up in recent years, nothing about us without us. Hmm. And that's come through in the LGBTQ community. It's come in um, Jews of color or even without the Jewish community, even beyond it. And so I think that's really where it's about. I think I start from a place of deep curiosity. I think the very first step is to get curious about what it is, what the origins of that experience are, and actually speak to some people. Uh, you know, how is this working for you? This is part of your tradition, your cultural tradition. One of the great teachings that we have, at least in particular in Canada, is within the Indigenous community here about saying, well, it's all great that we want to offer uh, a land acknowledgement. Lots of synagogues are doing it. But are we actually reaching out to our neighbors in the Indigenous community and asking, are you comfortable with this? What about this language? You know, we put something together. Does that does that resonate with you? So that's, a, that's I think, a place that feels comfortable and feels respectful to really start from a place of curiosity and conversation first and foremost. Hmm. Well, I look forward to uh, reading your dissertation someday. <laughs> uh, and maybe the next time we have you on the program, you'll be Dr. Elise Glickman a few years from now. Uh, just a few years. <laughs> right. Can I ask you two more questions? Yeah. So these are the questions that I ask everybody at the end of the interview. And one is about ritual and one is about books. So we've been talking about ritual, and I'm curious if there is one Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful in your life. And then the last question is, if there's one book that you'd recommend that we all need to read. I have a, a colleague who, she's not the first one to do this, who ends each tefillah, each service, with the congregation um, connecting arms or touching elbows, whatever feels consensual and good, and ending with the threefold priestly blessing mm. that is traditionally said to someone. It's sort of bestowed upon the heads of your children on Shabbat or under the chuppah if you're getting married, lots of life cycle times where we offer this priestly benediction, this priestly blessing. But what this is doing is it's offering each person to be in physical proximity to one another and to bless ourselves and each other. And that has resonated with me so much. I've now brought it into my own service leading practice. And what I, what I ask people to do is to actually turn and look at someone in the eye. There is something very humane um, but also, so it's both grounding and then awesome, right? It sort of takes us outside of ourselves to something greater than ourselves. Again, back to our conversation um, a few minutes ago when we were talking about Parashat HaShavuah, the Torah portion for this week, that we are all divine in nature. Mm. And we are asking to see the divinity, the spark of goodness and beauty, truth and wholeness in each of us when we stand arm in arm and we offer this traditional blessing to one another. And, and I wonder if now in this world of this late COVID world, I was going to say post-COVID, but it's not post-COVID, this world where we've been so isolated from each other, if we need that more than ever, right? To stand in proximity, to look in each other's eyes, to 
as you say, bump elbows or somehow, mm-hmm. you know, be in contact with one another. I think maybe, and, you know, to go back to your issue of embodied practices, I think maybe we need that that presence, that physicality more than ever because we have been so isolated from each other. Absolutely. How about a book? One book we all need to read. I know I mentioned Musar before, and so I'm just going to stay on theme. Um, I think everyone should read really anything by Alan Marinus, who is the, I don't know, the the parent of contemporary Musar. Um, But one that's really a lovely, it's actually a quite a, it's a small book. It's long, um, but in bite-sized pieces, but it's a sort of a pocket-sized book you could carry around. It's called Everyday Holy Day. And it's 365 days of teachings. And it's organized by these different Mido, these different character traits, these measures. So it's a very accessible way to dip your toe into learning about Musar and exploring the Midot. And Alan Marinus is really such a gift to the world in a way that uh, has, has, has lifted up the power of Musar in a contemporary setting. Um, I don't know him. He doesn't know me. I just think he's great. Wonderful. And if I remember correctly, I think that book has spaces for writing, for journaling, yes. right? For thinking about these different midot, these different attributes in your own life. That's a great suggestion. Thank you. Well, Rabbi Elise Glickman, I want to thank you for spending some time with me today. This has been really interesting and really lovely catching up with you. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. And greetings from Midtown Toronto all the way up to the burbs. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's my conversation with Rabbi Elise Glickman. Thanks to her for joining me. Thank you for listening in. And I look forward to next week when we continue our journey through the book of Exodus. A reminder that if you want to join us for that Zoom class on radical Jewish views of God, just go to laasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org, and sign up for the class. As always, you can email me, rabbistreifer at gmail.com. See you next week. 7-Minute Torah is a production of La Asok, Sacred Texts, Modern Meaning. If you enjoyed this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Thanks for listening.